From New York, this is Democracy Now! Bolsonaro, you didn't believe in medicine. You believed in your lie. Because if there's someone who is possessed by the devil, it is Bolsonaro. He's a liar like I've never seen anyone lie. Former Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has formally announced his campaign to challenge Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, in October's election. Fear is growing Bolsonaro might try to stay in office even if he loses. We'll get the latest. Then we'll look at the recent murder of British journalist Dom Phillips and indigenous researcher Bruno Pereira in Brazil's Amazon rainforest and what it says about Bolsonaro, who once vowed, quote, there won't be one more inch of indigenous reserve. We'll speak to an indigenous lawyer who just came to Washington to talk to lawmakers after helping to lead a search and rescue mission for the two men. When the president uh, dismantles public policies and public institutions that should serve indigenous rights, when the government persecutes its civil servants whose mandate it should be to protect uh, the indigenous peoples and the policies applied to them, we become more vulnerable. Then the territory. That's the title of a stunning new documentary looking at the struggle of the indigenous Uruéo Wawao people in Rondonia to save their land in the Brazilian rainforest from illegal settlers, farmers, and loggers. This forest and its rivers are our home. They give us life. The Uru Ewawao territory is like a barrier against deforestation. Everything's gone. Much of the footage was filmed by Brazilian indigenous activists themselves during the pandemic. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A top United Nations official has warned fighting in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region has spawned the worst humanitarian disaster on Earth. World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, who's originally from Tigray, said the conflict, which first erupted in late 2020, now threatens the lives of millions, even as global leaders largely ignore the crisis. I can tell you that. The humanitarian crisis in Tigray is more than Ukraine, without any exaggeration. And I said it many months ago, maybe the reason is the color of the skin of the people in Tigray. Dr. Tedros's remarks Wednesday came as Ethiopian officials called for a formal ceasefire agreement and nearly two years of fighting with separatists in Tigray, where some six million people have been largely cut off from the outside world for months, unable to access food, medicine and other necessities. The Tigray People's Liberation Front has so far rejected the peace proposal, calling it obfuscation meant to distract from ongoing fighting. The United Nations warns the Tigray conflict has combined with a worsening drought across across Ethiopia to threaten the lives of 20 million people. In Ukraine, Russian strikes on the northeastern city of Kharkiv overnight left at least 12 people dead and dozens more injured. In the deadliest of the attacks, a three-story residential building was flattened after it took a direct hit from a Russian missile. Video of the aftermath showed rescue workers sifting through the rubble of the building, which once housed about 50 people. 
As a result of the midnight hour, we have seven dead and 16 wounded. As a result of the rocket hit, these are the people who were inside the building who survived, and also people who were in buildings nearby who sustained varying degrees of injuries from shrapnel, glass, and other things. Human Rights Watch has condemned Russia's assault on Kharkiv, accusing it of indiscriminately firing banned cluster munitions into populated areas, damaging health care facilities and homes. Elsewhere, Ukraine's military says it struck an ammunition depot near frontline fighting in the Kherson region. An advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky said Ukrainian forces had reached a strategic deadlock in the war, with only minimal Russian advances. Today, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is meeting with President President Zelensky in the western city of Lviv, where they'll be joined by Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan to discuss a deal to allow Ukraine to safely export grain from Black Sea ports. Donald Trump's former personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, has testified to a grand jury in Atlanta, Georgia, as part of a criminal probe into election interference by Trump and his supporters. Giuliani spent more than six hours at the Fulton County Courthouse for Wednesday's closed-door proceedings after a judge ordered him to comply with a subpoena. Prosecutors told Giuliani's lawyers this week he could face criminal charges over efforts to overturn Joe Biden's win in Georgia after the 2020 election. Meanwhile, lawyers for Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp have asked a judge to throw out a subpoena, ordering him to testify later this month. This comes as Donald Trump struggles to find criminal defense attorneys who'll agree to represent him. The Washington Post reports Trump's current legal team includes a Florida insurance lawyer who's never had a federal case, a past general counsel for a parking garage company and a former host at the far-right One America News Network. Contributions to Donald Trump's Political Action Committee have surged since federal agencies classified documents from Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. The Washington Post reports Trump's PAC has sent out over 100 emails railing against the FBI since August 8th raid, netting over $1 million a day at least twice. On Wednesday, former Vice President Mike Pence called on Republicans to end their attacks on the FBI. Party stands with the men and women who serve on the thin blue line at the federal and state and local level. And these attacks on the FBI must stop. Calls to defund the FBI are just as wrong as calls to defund the police. Mike Pence also said he would consider speaking with a House Select Committee investigating the January 6 attack if he was asked to testify. Pence was speaking at a politics and eggs breakfast in New Hampshire, where speakers often include future presidential candidates. A federal judge has ordered the U.S. pharmacy chains CVS, Walgreens and Walmart to pay more than $650 million to two Ohio counties over their role in fueling the opioid epidemic. Wednesday's ruling follows a federal jury's verdict in November that found the corporation's sale of highly addictive painkillers caused severe harm to communities and violated Ohio's public nuisance laws. South Carolina's Supreme Court has temporarily blocked enforcement of the state's six-week ban on abortions while a legal challenge to the law proceeds. Reproductive rights groups are suing to overturn South Carolina's so-called fetal heartbeat law, which bans abortions once electrical activity can be detected in an embryo's cardiac cells, which typically happens around just six weeks into a pregnancy. In North Carolina, a federal judge has reinstated that state's ban on abortion after 20 weeks of pregnancy. 
In Louisiana, all three clinics that previously offered abortion care have closed their doors and we will relocate to other states. After the state Supreme Court ruled Friday that a near-total abortion ban can remain in effect across Louisiana. Meanwhile, a federal court in Florida has ordered a 16-year-old orphan to carry her pregnancy to term after she petitioned the court for the right to have an abortion, testifying that she was, quote, not ready to have a baby. A three-judge panel denied the request, ruling the girl, quote, had not established that she was sufficiently mature to decide whether to terminate her pregnancy, unquote. In Afghanistan, at least 21 people were killed and 33 wounded in a bombing at a mosque in the capital of Kabul. The attack came during evening prayers Wednesday. There has been no immediate claim of responsibility, but similar bombings in the past have been claimed by a local affiliate of the Islamic State. Israeli forces raided and closed the offices of seven Palestinian civil society rights groups in the occupied West Bank Thursday. Several of the groups report soldiers confiscated items and files before leaving behind notices declaring the organizations unlawful. Israel designated six out of the seven groups as terrorist organizations in October of last year, a decision met with criticism from both the United Nations and international human rights groups. And with just two weeks remaining before a pandemic-related pause on federal student loan payments expires, progressive lawmakers and activists are pressing President Biden to take sweeping action to cancel student debt. Today, the Debt Collective is launching its 50 Over 50 campaign, a coordinated strike by 50 debtors over the age of 50 who say they'll refuse to pay back their loans should President Biden renege on his campaign promise to cancel student debt. Activists are calling for the cancellation of all federal student debt, or at least $50,000 per person. This is debt collective activist Lystra Small-Clowden. Me and my fellow strikers can't pay this debt, and we won't pay. Although I achieved my academic goals, my success was short-lived because within my household, we have accumulated over $300,000 in student debt. That's why I am joining the 50 over 50 debt strike. The 50 of us collectively hold nearly $6 million in student debt. I am pleading with President Joe Biden, please make things right. Cancel all student debt. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we spend the hour looking at Brazil, a country at a crossroads. On October 2nd, voters will head to the polls for one of the world's most important elections of the year. Former Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva is challenging Brazil's current far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro. Lula is running on a platform to reduce inequality, preserve the Amazon rainforest, and protect Brazil's indigenous communities. He's a former union leader who served as president of Brazil from 2000. 2003 to 2010. During that time, he helped lift tens of millions of Brazilians out of poverty. In 2018, he was jailed on trumped-up charges paving the way for Bolsonaro's election. Lula was eventually freed last year after a Brazilian judge annulled all convictions against him. On Tuesday, Lula held his first campaign rally at a car factory outside Sao Paulo. Lula denounced Bolsonaro's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has killed nearly 700,000 Brazilians. 
Bolsonaro, you didn't believe in medicine. You believed in your lie. Because if there's someone who is possessed by the devil, it is Bolsonaro. He's a liar like I've never seen anyone lie. I want Bolsonaro to hear my words. There will be no lies and no fake news that will keep you ruling this country, Bolsonaro. We don't want a government that distributes weapons. We want a government that distributes books. We don't want a government that feeds hate. We want a government that feeds love. That was Luis Inácio Lula da Silva speaking Tuesday. While polls show Lula in the lead, fear is growing that President Jair Bolsonaro may try to steal the election, possibly with help from the Brazilian military. On Tuesday, Bolsonaro also formally launched his re-election campaign. Our country does not want to take steps back. We don't want gender ideology in schools. Our country does not want to legalize drugs. Our country respects life from its conception. Our country does not want to become an ally to communism and other countries. A country that wants a president who defends private property. A country that increasingly preaches its people the freedom to raise their children. We are going to talk politics today, so tomorrow no one will prohibit us from believing in God. To talk more about the Brazilian election, we're joined by Michael Fox, freelance journalist, former editor of NACLA, host of the new podcast Brazil on Fire. Fox's most recent piece for NACLA is headlined Brazil on Fire, Democracy and Dictatorship. We are reaching him in Flores, Guatemala. Usually he lives in Brazil. Michael, welcome back to Democracy Now! Um, we're about, in our next segment, to talk about um, the murders— of the uh, journalist Dom Phillips and the indigenous researcher uh, Bruno Pereira, and then talk about a new film about the struggle of the indigenous in the Amazon. Put this in a broader context of the significance of this week, Lula's announcement that he is running for president in the October election, and Bolsonaro um, possibly intimating that he might not leave even if he loses. Thanks so much, Amy. Great to be back. Um, no, this is huge. And obviously, you're seeing two different visions for Brazil. One Lula's pushing is about democracy, saying we need unity. Uh, we need to, to bring back the country, what we had many, many years ago. And Bolsonaro is obviously pushing a much more authoritarian tan stance. That's what we've seen in Brazil over the last four years. That's what led in, in large part to kind of the, uh, the, the, the Wild West attitude up in the Amazon, uh, like you're going to be talking about in a little bit, where Bolsonaro called for the development of the Amazon. And we saw this huge uptick in the amount of in the amount of violence, invasions of indigenous territories, killings and whatnot in that region. But this is extremely significant, what we're seeing. And it's also really important to look at the two places that the different candidates went to just this week, ABC, Sao Paulo, where Lula was. That's his home base. That's where he got his start as a, as a former uh, union leader back in the 1970s, led the, the, the major marches that would then show the beginning of the end of the dictatorship. Uh, and Bolsonaro in Juiz de Fora in Minas, in Minas Gerais, that was actually where he got stabbed back four years ago in the lead up to the campaign. So they're both they're both kind of going back to their origins. Bolsonaro, kind of this renewal 
using this kind of religious language, uh, because obviously Bolsonaro is one of his main uh, groups of support are the evangelicals, obviously. Uh, and so his focus on family values and whatnot. Uh, and Bolsonaro saying we can take this country back. And that's what many, many people have been talking about for a very long time. They've been excited about Lula's candidacy since, you know, before he was jailed four years ago uh, with the idea of, of, of coming returning to some sort of democratic normalcy. In fact, you were there outside the jail when he went to prison and when he came out. The significance of being exonerated of all the charges. Oh, it was huge. I mean, he was not—and and, and we have to put this into context, right? It wasn't just one conviction that was against him. There were, there were roughly two dozen uh, accusations and convictions uh, against him, and they've all been tossed out. And what it basically shows is we had a legal system that was being used in order to try and tank Lula— and tank uh, the left, tank the Workers' Party. Uh, and, and in fact, the Supreme Court came out just last year saying that uh, Judge Sergio Moro, who was the anti-corruption judge, was heralded by many on, on the right and conservative sectors for kind of uh, attacking corruption across the country. And even the, the, the Supreme Court saying, came out saying that he was biased in his conviction. And of course, that was largely, uh, we knew that because of the, the leaks from The Intercept that came out Back in back in June of 2019, that showed that Judge Sergio Moro was actually uh, in connection with prosecutors, uh, was was training them, was teaching the prosecutors, telling them what they needed to do. Uh, and also the prosecutors were were, were trying to scheme about how to, to, to keep the Workers' Party from coming back to power. So it's extremely complicated. This is the, 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 the history of Brazil. But no, very, very important and, and extremely exciting that we see Lula now back. Uh, and running. I want to go back to 2018 when we spoke to Lula, uh, when at the time he was running for president. It was right before he was jailed. I was not accused of corruption. I was accused because of a lie. In a police investigation. A lie in an indictment by the Office of the Attorney General and in the judgment of Judge Moro. Because there is only one evidence of my innocence in this entire trial, which my defense counsel explained in a magisterial manner. So at the time, he then couldn't run for president. Bolsonaro became president. Talk about Bolsonaro then being called the Trump of the tropics, what happened through the pandemic, uh, and then what he's talking about for this election, what he's intimating. Again, very uh, similar to what we hear former President Trump saying. Extremely similar. And look, the pandemic was a disaster in Brazil. Like you said, almost 700,000 dead. And Bolsonaro the entire time um, fought with with governors against uh, lockdowns and restrictions. He said everyone just needed to get back to work. He pushed unproven drugs. Uh, and basically peddled fake news and conspiracy theory the entire way, said he wouldn't wear a mask in public uh, and said it was fine. Even if he got sick, uh, it wasn't a big deal. Uh, it, even when vaccines came out, many different 
companies came to him offering those vaccines early. He refused to buy them. And that's part of the reason why there were so many dead. And in fact, it came out just uh, last year in a Senate investigation that accused Bolsonaro of nine different crimes about re- regarding the, the covid pandemic, uh, including um, crimes against humanity for not protecting indigenous communities enough. Um, and of course, the lack of oxygen when the oxygen ran out in Manaus, which was just a disaster. So this is just a metaphor. It's a symbol for what uh, Bolsonaro's reality has been uh, across the country, uh, where he's been um, pushing cons- consistently conspiracy theories, lies and fake news, very, very similar to Trump. And he's talking about doing the same thing. Now, one thing, Amy, is really important to understand, however, he's not focused on the issues. He doesn't want to talk about inflation. He doesn't want to talk about uh, the rising poverty. Um, what he wants to talk about are our so-called family values. He wants to talk about issues that are important for evangelicals. He wants to dive into the culture war of good versus evil. Uh, and he wants to talk about abortion. He wants to talk about uh, fighting homosexuality, gutting LGBTQ rights. These are issues where Bolsonaro really thinks he can gain support. And of course, roughly, uh, you know, he, he basically won the 2018 election because of the evangelical vote. That was extremely important. It's important to remember also that evangelicals have risen across the country in huge numbers, now make up roughly a, a third of the population. And this is the country, the, the world's largest Catholic country. Um, and so this is really important for Bolsonaro. But Lula is also fighting back. Lula, you know, he's been embracing evangelicals more and more. And like you heard in that quote, he said that Bolsonaro is uh, he's uh, possessed by the devil. And so he's also trying to use that terminology to kind of push back there. Do you think he can get the military to stop this election or to change the results of it? Amy, this is one of the biggest questions, right? He's been calling on his people to turn out in the streets on September 7th, which is, of course, is Brazil's Independence Day. It's also the bicentennial Independence Day this year. Uh, Many people are concerned about what may happen. Is he going to, to, to be able to do some sort of a January 6th coup moment? And the big question is, will the military support him? And that's really up in the air. Now, we the military push back at him at times. Uh, in fact, just last year, we saw the, the largest military crisis in, the, in, in, in 20 or 30 years in Brazil because Bolsonaro was, you know, he was asking his military officials to do things that they did not want to do. Uh, and so the big question on everybody's mind is, is he going to try to do something like this? Uh, and we don't really know what it's going to look like at this point. What I can say is he's going to continue to push his 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 theme of fraud. He's going to continue to say that they should be doing paper ballots. And his latest thing was saying that the military should be filming people inside voting booths as a way to ensure transparency. Well, Michael, we're going to have that really means is we're going to have to leave it there. But I want to thank you so much for being with us. Michael Fox, freelance journalist, former editor of NACLA, host of a new podcast. It's called Brazil on Fire, Democracy and Dictatorship, the podcast, a joint project of NACLA and the Real News Network. Uh, Michael Fox's wife's grandmother, her uncle, friends, relatives all died of COVID in Brazil. Coming up, we'll look at the recent murder of British journalist Dom Phillips and the indigenous researcher Bruno Pereira in Brazil's Amazon rainforest, speaking with an indigenous lawyer who's just returned from the United States, where he was talking to Congress members. He helped lead a search and rescue mission for the two men. Essa luz que não se vê passa pela voz ao se cair.
calar É a vez de uma estrela Guarda o nome dela Nosso coração Music by Catana Veloso. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue to look at Brazil, turning to the murders of the British journalist Dom Phillips and the indigenous researcher Bruno Pereira, who went missing this past June in Brazil's Javari Valley in the Amazon rainforest. Their remains were found dismembered about two weeks later. This month, police arrested five people linked to the murders and identified a suspect arrested earlier as the leader of an illegal fishing-organized crime group in the Amazon region. This week, a Brazilian Senate Commission investigating the murders recommended a military operation in the Javari Valley to address the rise in organized crime. Well, Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez and I recently interviewed indigenous lawyer Eliesio Maruba, who led a search and rescue mission for Phillips and Pereira, just returned to Brasilia after visiting with U.S. lawmakers in Washington, D.C., to call for an independent investigation into the murders. I asked him to begin describing uh, what he understood happened to the men and his efforts to find them. First, the initial thing we were uh, concerned about uh, as Univaja, the indigenous organization in the Javari region, was our commitment to find the bodies, find them um, initially alive, but then the bodies, and, as, and to understand what had happened. And as soon as that, we heard what had ha happened, their disappearance, then uh, we went uh, to look search for them. So after we had located their remains, the second part of our uh, what we went about was to share information that we had collected with the authorities and to demand for an investigation so we could understand who had committed such horrible things to our companions. And the third part of our action was to really engage in, in broad action to ask the authorities to do their work, to demand an independent and thorough investigation. And that's why we reached out not only to the Brazilian authorities, but also abroad. And that's what I came to do in the U.S. Eliesio, could you talk about the uh, Dom and Bruno were working on a book called How to Save the Amazon. Can you tell us about the Javari Valley and the people who live there? The Javari is a, uh, Valley is a very important area for Brazil. Um, it is the entryway to two other countries. We're in a triple frontier there. And there are several social problems there to be faced, mainly uh, the most important of which is security. Our work has focused on safeguarding our communities, uh, especially access to public policies. And also to protect them from non-indigenous people who have other interests in our territory. Most of the indigenous people in the region have given us the mandate to represent them. So we are an organization that represents all the indigenous peoples living in that region. And 
So the reflection we bring, the problem we bring is how is Brazil taking care of its borders and how is Brazil taking care of its original indigenous people? Because we are dying and our partners are dying and we're dying in a very abrupt and cruel manner. What we've observed in the region is a deliberate lack of action by the Brazilian government, and that has led to the victimization of our peoples, um, non-protection of our peoples and of our territory in the national and international scenario. This is the great issue and the great dilemma in the Javadi Valley. Can you describe how life has uh, gotten worse for indigenous people under the current president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro? The losses have been suffered by the whole population, not just by the indigenous population under this Bolsonaro's administration. But the indigenous peoples have suffered more because we are much more dependent on the on public policies. When the president uh, dismantles public policies and public institutions that should serve indigenous rights, when the government persecutes its civil servants whose mandate it should be to protect uh, the indigenous peoples and the policies applied to them, we become more vulnerable. And that is why indigenous organizations, and specifically here, Univaja, have had to take on the role of protection fundamental of fundamental rights in our region. I do believe that time will change this, but I don't know how much time we can continue to endure this, how much time we have left before help comes to us. We have so many people who have been murdered. We have many others who are being threatened. So we don't know how long we'll be able to endure this. Eliezer Maruva, if you could tell us—I mean, you are incredibly brave to have launched the investigation into um, Dom and Bruno, uh, because, of course, what they faced in their murders is, as you're explaining, is the threat to so many people in the Javari region and, and the Amazon. Um, talk about what you found and if you feel that there's any connection to the highest ranks of the Brazilian government, right to Jair Bolsonaro, at least the attitude toward preserving the Amazon. Bolsonaro's omission uh, in terms of protection uh, in the Javadi region has opened wide doors to the presence of organized crime in the region. And what I did was to give visibility to our region, to the Javadi Valley, because uh, we have gone through problems for many decades. I've paid a price, a very high price for speaking up, and I know I will continue to, to, to pay a price. But I am too tired uh, of the persecution we've suffered. I am too tired of just watching the difference between what the policies are and what we actually get. 
So it was really important to come to the U.S., to go to the U.S. and um, speak to members of Congress. I told them, I don't know how long I have left in this life, but it was very important that we could establish this initial dialogue um, for our cause. Eliasio Marubo, I wanted to ask you, uh, you've been, uh, you went to Washington, you appealed to the lawmakers here in this country, but to the American public, uh, who doesn't, uh, many of whom do not know what is going on in Brazil, are there major American companies that are directly exploiting the resources of the Amazon to the detriment of the uh, people of Brazil and the indigenous people? And if so, can you name some of those companies? Uh, primeiramente, nós fazemos um... So first to say that we have endeavored to establish communication, not just with politicians, but with the public in general, with uh, common people and uh, society as a whole, because we believe that society as a whole should be involved and should care about these these issues. We have what is going on there is a relevant theme um, for fundamental rights, uh, namely the right to life. É necessário que a sociedade se entere do que está acontecendo, não só na Ucrânia. It's important that um, society is made aware of what is happening in our region. Um, in the same way that they're made aware of what's going on in Ukraine with the war, um, in the Middle East. They need to know that there is immense suffering in Brazil, that we are suffering many losses. And uh, it's Brazil, what they say in the international arena, their lies. And we have to, to bring this information to the public. Another point is the existence of American and you ask about U.S. enterprises in the area, uh, not directly, but we, of course, know that we have illegal wildcat mining in the area, and there are many tons of gold, for example, that are extracted from our region illegally. And where do they go? They go abroad, and they go to the U.S., and they end up in U.S. stores and in U.S. storefronts. So the gold that is uh, decorating someone's arm or someone's earring or is given as a gift, that costs lives, that costs, it, it comes with our blood, it comes with our indigenous blood. And also the, the issue of meat, uh, the meat that ends up in your restaurant is meat that came from the Amazon region uh, these, uh, with big companies. So the meat that is consumed abroad carries the flesh of indigenous people. Uh, the way it, it is produced is a way that is harmful to indigenous people. It costs lives, especially in the westernmost part of our region. And I believe we could solve these issues through a concerted grand conversation between nation states where we would point out the costs of production of, of all of these products that leave Brazil, 
um, in, of course, in an international scenario where we would be able to discuss the importance of preservation and the importance of respect for indigenous lives. That's the Brazilian indigenous lawyer Eliezio Marubo speaking to us from Brasilia. Coming up next, a new documentary about the indigenous struggle to save the Amazon. It's called The Territory. Stay with us. Performing Forest Warrior. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. As former Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva and Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, formally launched their presidential campaigns this week, a new film coming out Friday documents the struggle of the indigenous Uruguayawawaw people in the Brazilian Amazon against the deforestation and destruction of their land by farmers and others illegally extracting resources. It's called The Territory. This is the trailer. This forest and its rivers are our home. They give us life. The Ural Ewawao territory is like a barrier against deforestation. Everything's gone. I believe the Amazon is the heart, not just of Brazil, but the whole world. For those who live here, the Brazilian dream is to own some land and make your living from it. We'll plant some crops to move our Brazil forwards. I've never seen Indians there. People say they're there, but I've never seen them. It's just talk. It makes me sick knowing we're considered criminals, like we're the ones hurting the country. I think there's somebody up ahead. Go, go. For some, the land is their heritage. For others, it is a new frontier. They all call it home. The Association of Rio Bonito says that they want our land. But I think they want more than that. They want us to disappear. We're not going to let that happen. The territory was filmed over three years, including during the pandemic, and much of it was filmed by the indigenous activists themselves. This week, I sat down with two of the people it features and its director, Alex Pritz. This is his first film. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, winning both an audience award and special jury award for documentary craft. I asked Alex Pritz to begin by talking about what inspired him to make the territory and why he called it that. For me, the, the journey behind the territory really started when I read about the work of Nadinia Bandiera, um, the activist at the center of the film. I had read about her work protecting the Amazon rainforest, um, working to defend indigenous lives, and just felt so inspired by this woman who, against all odds, in a part of the world where everybody was against her, an extremely hostile environment, was 
proudly standing up in defense of, of, you know, this beautiful planet that we all have. And so I reached out to her during the campaign, uh, the 2018 presidential elections in Brazil, when we saw this really divisive, inflammatory rhetoric coming from the Bolsonaro campaign and said, uh, you know, look, it looks like your work is about to become much more difficult really quickly. Uh, could I come and, and meet you in Brazil? And, and that was sort of where it began. And take us on that journey. Tell us the story. Yeah, for me, I mean, uh, Nadine has got this gravitational energy and, and just pulls you right in. Um, so uh, arriving in Brazil, you know, I, I had a lot of ideas about what types of films I wanted to make. Nadine sat me down really quickly and said, uh, you know, this, whatever you think the film is about, it's, it's not about that. Um, introduced me to the Uruwau community, an indigenous group that is defending an area about 7,000 square miles of rainforest, um, two and a half times the size of the state of Delaware. Huge area of, of pristine rainforest crucially important for uh, climate change and keeping the guardrails on the worst effects of, of our changing climate. And it's being defended by a group of 183 people. Um, and so, you know, between Nadinha and her relationship with the Uruwau, forged uh, a story about the defense of the rainforest, trying to bring in the perspective of some of the farmers and settlers that are also invading, burning, um, and, and attacking this forest as well. And that was what is so unusual also about the territory, your film, is that you talk to um, the people that the indigenous people call the invaders, talk about the settlers and the farmers and their response to you in this film, as they understood that you were doing a film about the people they consider their enemy, or do they? Yeah, I mean, the motivation and the impetus to reach out to these uh, invading farmers and settlers came from conversations with Bitete Nadinha, who said, look, if you want to understand the source of this violence and the, the root of this conflict, don't just talk to us. You know, we're, we're on the receiving end of this conflict. But go talk to the people that are lighting fire to the rainforest, who are out there chopping away at it. Uh, and, and they'll speak to you, because you're American, and they have this uh, cultural, ideological admiration for America because of its, uh, you know, ideas of manifest destiny and, and the westward expansion and, and dispossession of native lands that occurred here. Um, these, these settlers and frontiersmen in Brazil really do hold America in, in very high esteem for that reason. And, and uh, you know, through uh, a lot of conversations and, and moving past their kind of initial skepticism, we were able to forge some relationships with these farmers uh, that allowed us to get some insight into what it is that's, that's really driving uh, this conflict in Brazil. And do they understand the danger that indigenous people feel and the whole issue of the climate catastrophe and the Amazon being the lungs of the planet? Yeah, I mean, I think small subsistence farmers, as, as well as anybody, are, are feeling the effects of climate change. The people that we spoke to said, you know, of course we, we understand the climate's changing. That's a given. Um, they viewed land almost as a disposable commodity. They said, we need to go get fresh land because the land here has all been too degraded and requires too many fertilizer inputs. Um, so they, they do have some ecological awareness, but I think the historical context of their actions, the, the scope of destruction in the Amazon is something they're not really aware of. At the same time, they have this really dangerous view that 
the land is just unoccupied. You know, it's the same uh, national mythology that, that America was founded on, this idea of terra nullis, that, that there's an empty area on the map, and it's just up to them to go out and colonize it, turn that wilderness into private property. And, and that's really how uh, these settlers view the indigenous people there, as kind of an inconvenient obstacle in their inevitable road to, to the acquisition of this land. And, of course, you're doing this in a larger political context than you're an American, uh, doing this film during President Trump. Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, has so often been called the Trump of the tropics. Can you talk about that relationship and uh, what drove you to understand something you were seeing in the United States as well? Yeah, I mean, I think— you, you see it in the, the physical iconography, the paraphernalia these farmers have, the big belt buckles, the Texas cowboy hats. Um, they, they really believe in uh, this, this American colonial project. Um, you know, Bolsonaro had a quote from the 1990s when he was a senator in Brazil where he said, it's a shame the Brazilian cavalry hasn't been as efficient as the Americans. Uh, now they don't have these indigenous problems in their country. And I think that that idea, that, that really dangerous, violent, toxic idea is, is at the core of the way that a lot of these farmers and settlers view uh, their relationship to America. Can you talk about the making of the territory? Uh, in the film, we see uh, indigenous people, the people you are filming, also filming. Explain. Yeah. During COVID, um, Bitete, the young leader of the Uruwau, said, no more cameras, no more journalists, no more documentary filmmakers, no more Alex. Uh, nobody's coming into or out of our territory. And that was in part because of the collective memory of what happened to his community when they were forcibly assimilated and contacted by the Brazilian government in 1981. More than half of their population died within two years, largely from communicable diseases. So This was an uh, uncontacted you know, population. Explain what that means until then. Yeah. So as Brazil was building roads up into the Amazon, um, they had a policy that they would go out and forcibly contact and assimilate a lot of these isolated uh, indigenous groups that were living autonomously in the region. And, uh, you know, in a way to protect the people that were building these roads and invading that uh, indigenous territory. And so in 1981, that happened to the Uruwau community. Um, they were forcibly assimilated into the Brazilian state. A portion of the Uruwau remained uh, isolated and said, you know, we are going, we're not going to acquiesce to this forced contact by this new white group that, that's shown up and surrounded us. And so Bitete and the Uruwau, as they're protecting the forest and the plants and the animals, are also protecting their own relatives that remain in voluntary isolation, um, you know, without knowledge of Bolsonaro or the Brazilian state, um, you know, really living, living their lives in a more traditional way. And so continue on the issue of the cameras. So Bitete, yes. uh, during COVID, uh, says, no more Alex, no more people from the outside. Take it from there. Yeah. So when Bitete made that really brave decision to say nobody else is allowed into or out of our territory, we had to take stock as a film team and say, OK, do we have enough footage? Should we start editing? Uh, you know, where are we in the storytelling process? And that was an open conversation that we had with Bitete and the protagonists of our film. And 
Bichete said really clearly, no, we're not done. We can keep doing this. Just send us some cameras, uh, send us better audio equipment, and we will produce, shoot, uh, you know, manage the production of the last chapter of this film. And so it was a big gamble at the time. It felt really risky and, and scary to me as a director. But looking back, I think it opened up all of these creative possibilities for us to be able to gain access and allow the audience to gain firsthand perspective into this indigenous experience uh, and leave the story in their hands and, and through their eyes. Well, Alex Pritz, I want to thank you so much for being with us, director of The Territory. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. Joined right now by one of the people featured in the new film, The Territory. Betate Uruwao lives in the Jamari village on the Uruwao indigenous land in Rondonia, Brazil. He's coordinator of the Jupau Association since 2020, worked with the young citizens of the Amazon blog. Betate, welcome to Democracy Now! and welcome to the United States. Sim, muito obrigado pela recepção. Yes, thank you very much for having me. So you have been chosen by the elders of your community to be the leader. You're a young man. How old are you? Então, agora eu fui escolhido pelos anciãos do meu povo, né? I was chosen by the elders of my people. I'm now 22 years old. On 27 June, I turned 22, but I began from a young age, taking on major responsibilities when I was 19 years old. And now I'm on the front lines, fighting for my people. Talk about what that means, fighting for your people on the front lines. Talk about what you're fighting for. Então, acho que a gente well, I think that we're fighting for the rights of indigenous peoples in Brazil because we have seen several setbacks as indigenous peoples of Brazil, and this is leading us to be able to stand up for our rights as spelled out in the Constitution, significant rights, but of late, these rights are being taken apart. We're losing our rights. And, and this is happening more and more in the territories occupied by indigenous peoples in Brazil. So, I've just watched The Territory, this new film about you and your community and the Amazon. Um, in it, you're fighting to preserve the Amazon, and we're listening to Bolsonaro, the president. Can you talk about what his presidency has meant to indigenous people? Um, he said there won't be one more inch of indigenous reserve. Então, é, vamos dizer assim, o o governo do Bolsonaro, ele hoje so, é, Bolsonaro administration indigenous territories as a he said he would when he was running for president of Brazil, and today he is wanting to reduce the scope of indigenous territories more and more, particularly my territory and other indigenous territories. 
Tem várias terras indígenas em estudo para que possam ser demarcadas. Mas com esse governo, Brazil, ele for, não demarcou nenhum centímetro de terra, igual ele falou. His administration ele veio cumprindo a single fala dele. Mas para so nós, indígenas, isso é um, um, um retrocesso, né? Porque a gente vê que o presidente não dá o direito para os povos indígenas. Ele quer tirar o direito para os povos indígenas para dar para os povos indígenas. Então, para dar os povos indígenas, nós não aceitamos isso. O que aconteceu com nossos antepassados de ser desmantelados a gente sofre muito ameaça com isso sofremos bastante pressões dos invasores 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 território também existe os povos indígenas isolados que and hoje eles não têm contato nenhum a indígenas pessoas que não contato com a sociedade com a sociedade e isso so me preocupa muito com esse governo Bolsonaro. É, porque as populações indígenas vão sendo massacradas, vão sendo pela própria ação do governo. Hoje, atualmente, a gente tenta lutar contra isso, mas assim, a gente nunca desiste e nunca vai desistir de estar lutando pelo nosso território e também pelos nossos direitos. Porque eu acho que a única coisa é que You made a critical decision as a young leader of your community uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, saying people from outside could not come in. That also meant the filmmaker, Alex Pritz, and his team. Um, and you said, why don't you give us the cameras? Talk about what that has meant for you as you frame your own reality. Talk about what you did and what you filmed, the story you feel you want people to know. Então, acho que nós da pandemia, né, a gente, a gente tivemos so, um problema muito grande. Pandemic, problem, não foi a entrada de nenhuma pessoa de fora, incluindo também o Alex, que foi o nosso. We didn't let anyone in from outside, including tudo. Alex. Who was the one who started all of this? Muito, muito boa, assim, um, And so we had a very good idea. And it created an opportunity for us, indigenous peoples as well, to, for, so that we ourselves could show what our reality is. The indigenous peoples have a very different viewpoint than those who come from outside. And this was shown very clearly in the film. Because we ourselves filmed our own stories. We filmed our own reality. We filmed far beyond where Alex and Gabriel could get to. We're speaking about the new documentary, The Territory. In this clip, we meet Nijenia Bandera as she goes into the rainforest with the Uruwawao to investigate a report of invaders encroaching on their land and illegally cutting down trees. There are traces of people and motorcycles. Someone must have warned them we were coming. They won't attack now. They're waiting for the right moment to come back. They have left for now, but this isn't over. We have to be ready when they come back. 
That's a clip from The Territory, featuring our next guest, Nigenia Bandera, who spent over four decades working directly with indigenous communities to defend their rights and protect their lands. She co-founded the nonprofit Candide Ethno-Environmental Defense Association to continue their work with indigenous populations. Uh, Nigenia, welcome to Democracy Now! Obrigada. Agradeço a acolhida. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And it's great to be in a program that talks about democracy. Talk about the greatest threats to uh, the indigenous community in Brazil and to the rainforest. I can't talk about the Amazon forest in Brazil without speaking of the indigenous peoples. And today, the main rights that are being taken away are the right to the land, the right to health, the right to education, the right to live free. These are setbacks we are suffering in Brazil. For many years, we struggled to have a constitution that would explicitly guarantee indigenous peoples' rights. And we achieved that with the 1988 constitution. It's just that with the current administration, the Bolsonaro administration, and with our Congress, which is filled with people who don't represent the indigenous peoples, who don't represent the black people in Brazil, who don't represent the social movements in Brazil, we are seeing that our rights are being taken away. The right to life, the right to live well, the right to have a balanced climate for everyone, not just for us. Those are being taken away. The right to have a democracy in Brazil. Democracy is in danger in Brazil, and this danger also includes not allowing indigenous peoples to enjoy their right to land and to their territories. Do you think that Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva represents something different in Brazil from what Bolsonaro uh, has been as president? Com certeza absoluta. Lula é a diferença. Absolutely. Lula is the difference. Today, people are fighting, we are fighting, for Bolsonaro to not be re-elected. Under the Lula administration, the poorest people got education. The poorest people were able to eat. The poorest people were able to get services from the health system, which provided those health services. But none of that is working today. Today, the Bolsonaro administration has openly stated that he is not going to demarcate any more land. He has declared that the lands are already demarcated. Lands already guaranteed for the indigenous peoples may indeed be diminished. And he has the support of the Congress. What must be clear is that it is not enough to just change the president in Brazil. You need to change the president of Brazil, but also change a large part of the Congress. Because Bolsonaro was only able to do many of the absurd things that he has done because the Congress did not stop him from doing so. So, coming elections are extremely important for the Brazilian people. So are the assurances that our constitution will remain in place and that our rights will be respected. That is our struggle. Now, I'm not going to say that Lula was the best thing that we've seen for the indigenous peoples and the environment, because that's not true. Now, one thing I can guarantee you is that he was better than Bolsonaro. 
That's Nigenia Bandera, the co-founder of the nonprofit Candide Ethno-Environmental Defense Association, one of the people featured in the new National Geographic documentary, The Territory, which is coming out Friday in theaters across the country. We also spoke to the film's director, Alex Pritz, and Bitate Urueoawao, who lives in the Jamari village in Randonia, Brazil, coordinator of the Jupau Association. The producers of the film include Darren Arnofsky and Gabriela I had the chance to moderate the Q&A with them in Central Park when it premiered on Tuesday night. That does it for our show. Special thanks to Renee Feltz, Mary Conlon, Robbie, Karen, Mike Burke, Tarina Nadura, Dina Guzder, I'm Amy Goodman.